You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. I'm your host, Mike McFall, the director of FSI and the host of World Class. In recent years, identity politics have played a huge role in American elections, from ethnic and gender groups to the election of President Donald Trump. To help us understand how they've helped Americans, but also how they've hurt us, we're speaking today with Frank Fukuyama. His new book, Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment, just out recently, right, Frank? Explains how identifying with certain groups has changed politics in America and throughout the world, in fact. Frank is the Olivier Nomellini Senior Fellow here at FSI and the Mossbacher Director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law, also at FSI. Frank, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the book. Books are hard things to write, at least for most people. It doesn't seem like it's as hard for you as the rest of us, but anytime they are out, they should be celebrated. And just congratulations. Well, I appreciate that. that. It's it's, uh, a relief to get it out and uh, out into the world and getting reactions now. Yes, great. Well, let's let's start with what motivated you to write the book. Uh, Give us a little, especially as we've talked about a few other times, the intellectual evolution between the end of history, several things you did in between in this book. Uh, what's Is there a relationship between that intellectual journey or is it separate? Uh, well, sure. So for the past 10 years or so, we've been in what our colleague Larry Diamond calls a democratic recession. So you have authoritarian countries that are feeling really aggressive like Russia and China. But the more surprising development was the rise of this populism within existing democracies. So this was true in Hungary, Poland, Turkey. And then it turns out it was true in the United States and Britain with the two big votes uh, in 2016 for Donald Trump and for Brexit. And so this uh, reversed the you know, the 30-year trend towards increasing democracy in the world. Right. Uh, And it did it in surprising ways because you wouldn't expect that it would come from the, you know, the the seat of of the democratic world order, Washington, D.C. Right. We thought Uh, that had been settled, right? Yeah, we thought that had been settled. Uh, So that required, I think, both my changing my agenda, but also, you know, my center. We study democracy around the world. Right. We hadn't focused on the United States terribly much, you know, previously, but we realized that it was pretty urgent because what goes on in the United States affects other countries around the world. If you have a president that is slamming uh, the media as enemies of the American people, you know, it sends a signal to every other authoritarian leader to do the same thing. And in fact, that's what's been going on. So understanding why you're all of a sudden getting this kind of populism, I think really was what what uh, drove me to write this, uh, uh-huh. this book. Okay. Well, let's get to the why in a minute. Let's talk about the causes. But before we do that, let's define some terms because these are big, hard terms. Maybe not all Americans and maybe not even all our listeners uh, agree on the definition. Tell us what you mean by identity and also, when you do that, let's talk about what populists are, what nationalists are, what identity politics are. Sure. Just kind of level set before we try to explain the causes of it. Well, I have a very specific understanding of identity. Uh, it's built uh, around a universal human psychological characteristic, which is to want uh, respect. Uh, you want recognition of your your internal dignity. Right. And there's a modern version of it that says we all have this hidden self that is authentic and that has a great moral value. And the rest of society oftentimes doesn't recognize it. And the the task is to 
achieve that recognition. So I think that's really at the at the base of uh, of uh, recognition, and it takes a lot of different forms. So it can take the form of nationalism, where you know in the 19th century you're a German living in you know uh, the che- you know what had been the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and right. you think there ought to be a single German country. Uh, you ought to be recognized as a citizen of a of a unified Germany, and so that led you to nationalism. I think with Islam today or Islamism. Uh, a lot of young Muslims growing up in Europe are very confused about who they are. They reject their parents' traditional way of life, but they're not accepted really as Europeans. Right. Uh, and I think that leads them to seek an identity uh, as a Muslim fighter for ISIS or for Al-Qaeda, uh, <clears throat> part of a uh, a group that has been denigrated and you know by their narrative, uh, uh, repressed, uh, and they're now fighting back. Uh, so... I think that's the origin of of identity, and that's why it's linked to actually a lot of things going on in the world, like politicized religion uh, and like nationalism. Interesting. So it's it's a really wide definition about this, and you even use some Greek words. I want you to define them for us in a minute in your book. But um, not all uh, leaders or individuals who are practicing identity politics are populist. Then, therefore, right. Uh, no, that's uh, that's correct. Uh, I think in the United States, identity politics really starts on the left in the 1960s with all the uh-huh. big social movements regarding uh, African Americans, women, LGBT community. All right. of these groups had been marginalized by mainstream American society, and these groups were pushing back against this, and they wanted recognition of themselves. They didn't want to be invisible to a you know, to the mainstream. Right. Uh, they wanted recognition that they were suffering in particular ways. So, you know, women do not uh, are not um, uh, discriminated against in the same way that you know African Americans. And then, African American women are different from African American men. So, all of these different groups have spe- specific forms of grievances. And I think this is the way the politics uh, uh, developed. Uh, uh, over the you know period from the 60s up until the 2000s, and what's now happened, which I think is especially toxic, is that that whole framing and language has now drifted over to the to the right. Uh-huh. So you have a lot of white Americans that you know 50 years ago wouldn't have thought of themselves as well. I'm a white person, but now say, yeah, well, we whites are you know a discriminated against minority, right? Uh, which is of course not true, but uh, you know you have this idea that. Elites don't um, recognize us. They don't care for us. And, you know, like with all populisms, there's a core of truth to that. Because Uh I think in particular, you know, the white working class that has gone through a big economic and social decline over the past generation was not the object of particular attention by people that live in New York or San Francisco or Chicago or, Mm -hmm. you know, these big cosmopolitan uh, American cities. So that is a big shift, and 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 you know to remind our listeners that, and Walt, you tell me. I, I remind our listeners. I was about to make a giant assumption, but it, it seems to me that it used to be our political parties and and European parties as well were divided on kind of left right cleavages based on economic policies. When I listen to you talk, that's that's not the cleavage of this moment, right? It may be in addition, mm-hmm. not a substitute, but. The left uh, socialist parties or social democratic parties in Europe versus more conservative parties. Here in the United States, we used to associate the Republican Party with conservative ideas, the Democratic Party with more uh, left of center ideas. Mm -hmm. 
is that waned or is it well, in intention? Is it bo- are both still present? So it's 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 it has been waning and it's been shifting more to identity, and I, I think that's a very unhealthy development. Uh-huh. So you know the Republican Party uh, has become you know increasingly the party of white people, and the Democratic Party is increasingly the party of minorities, with some you know white professionals uh, added to the mix. Right um, now. That was always the case, that these demographic groups did line up and they were important in the way that people voted. But I think that those, um, you know, those uh, identity groups, the, the fixed ones, you know, you're, you're, you don't have a choice as to what gender, what race, what ethnicity you're born into. Right. People really don't have a choice about their religion. Right. And so to the extent that we start uh, lining up politically according to these categories uh, that we can't do anything about. I think it makes our politics uh, much more rigid. And um, so I think that actually the politics of the 20th century is something I'd love to get back to, where we actually were fighting over <laughs> Ideas know, economic policy policies, issues. Right. Because if you have identities, the policies that flow from them are pretty fixed, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's pretty dangerous. Well, let's talk about the causes for a bit. Uh, you've already hinted at them, but uh, obviously, this is a phenomenon we exper- we're seeing in the United States, but not only in the United States. So are there some general causes or is every populist movement specific to the countries that they're happening in, happening in? Well, if you look around the world as a whole, there's really a lot of this going on. You know, like India under Modi is shifting from a liberal conception of Indian national identity to a Hindu one. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I think that's kind of separate from the stuff that's going on in, in Europe and uh, North America, which I think is triggered by a very specific thing, which is the globalization of the world economy, the inequalities that's produced, and the declining incomes of a lot of working class people, uh-huh. uh, which has been true really for the last 20 years as a result of, you know, free trade and, you know, high rates of immigration have uh, change the demographic characteristics of many developed countries. Mm-hmm. So they've got substantial numbers of foreign-born people, and a lot of these societies were not used to that. So all of these things together uh, have an economic impact, but they also have an identity impact because people feel that their country has been somehow stolen from them or its uh-huh. character has changed, and they say, well, we didn't vote for this. You know, like... In Britain, over the last couple of years, nearly a million Poles have moved to that country. Which, a million? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a... I had no idea. It's an astonishing wow. uh, number. Um, so it's... There's you know, a that, reaction to that. That kind though. of rapid social change, I think, you know, has engendered this kind of backlash. And in fact, the opposition to the EU, uh, I think, is overwhelmingly not over, you know, their micro-regulation of food labeling and this sort of thing. It's really because people believe that it's the EU with its system of free movement, uh, you know, between countries uh, that is driving this this surge in immigration. Uh-huh. So b- both immigration and economic globalization trade are part and parcel of one global phenomenon, That's right. right. And I think that people uh, interpret loss of economic, uh, loss of a job, loss of income as a loss of status, you know, because mm-hmm. what you're paid for what you do represents... Uh, what society thinks of you, that you're doing something useful. Right. And so if you lose a job because your factory closes, uh, it means that, you know, you're not worth as much in, in the eyes of other people. And I think... So it's that's not what, just about the economics. It's not just right? about It's the, about your identity as a worker and the social right. 
groups that come with that. That's right. There's a book by Arlie Hochschild called Strangers in Their Own Land about uh, Tea Party uh, voters in rural Louisiana. And she's got this metaphor where they're all standing in a long line in front of a door marked the American Dream. They're waiting their turn to get in. And all of a sudden, they see these other people like you know, blacks or women or Syrian refugees, uh, you know, Mexican immigrants all cutting in line, cutting the line. Uh, ahead of them. And so they feel, you know, that this is something that was engineered by the elites, you know, to their uh, disadvantage. And that, I think, has stoked a lot of the anger uh, against, you know, these groups and then, you know, shifted the, the discussion because these groups are really defined by their identities. Right. Well, there's variation, though, in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so help us understand how you see that variation. And uh, let's just talk about America versus the United States versus Canada, for mm -hmm. instance. Canada hasn't yet. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe it's a lag, but they have a lot of immigration. They're part mm -hmm. of the global economy. Uh, and yet they have not produced a populist like Donald Trump. Which, right. no, why that's is a, that? That's a super interesting question. Uh, Actually, it's uh, I've got a new research project that's going to be looking oh, precisely at that. Excellent. Uh, it's not Canada alone. It's also Australia and New Zealand. Okay. All of these countries actually have a significantly higher rate of foreign-born people living in them right. than the United States, and they have not to date produced a populist like Donald Trump. And so the question is why? Now, part of that could simply be economic because these countries have been doing really well. They're commodity producers. Uh -huh. Australia hasn't had a recession in like 30 years. I mean, it's an really? incredible... They missed 2008? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. They did. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's all because of China. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so you don't have this kind of displacement of industrial workers there. Uh -huh. So that may be part of it. Uh, but also, I think their immigration policy is different. So it's just okay. both uh, Canada Australia have skill-based immigration policies. So the people that come in, you know, come in either with a lot of capital or with a lot of skills, and they fit, you know, into a growing economy quite well. And they're very careful about controlling illegal immigration. In the case of Australia, uh -huh. that's led them to do these fairly nasty things like take refugees from the Middle East and stick them in Papua New Guinea. Right. Uh, but the one thing that I think that's helped is it's prevented the emergence of a big backlash of the sort that you get uh, you know, in Europe as a result of the migrant crisis uh -huh. or in the United States because of this perception of, uh, you know, people right. from Latin America. So still high levels of immigration, but legal immigration and legal. pretty tough against the illegal. Yeah. Interesting. It, well, I look that I look forward to that study. That's a, a, a we should understand them, and maybe we'll learn from them, and we'll get back to prescriptions in one moment. But give me a kind of baseline of how worried you are about the future of liberal democracies, the, the the advanced liberal democracies you mentioned earlier, including our own. Is this a is this a pivot in the road, and we're going to be uh, dealing with identity politics and populists that take advantage of it for decades to come? Or are they institutions robust enough that we can withstand this? And, and if Donald Trump's voted out of office in 2020, will that mean a kind of return to the 20th century politics you were talking about before? Well, um, I think that none of these things are are phenomena that can't be turned around with the right kind of leadership. Okay. Uh, the thing about identity is it's very uh, plastic. I mean, you can shape it. Uh, it's been pushed in these narrow directions by a lot of different forces over the last 30 years. But you can also reverse that. You can have leaders that emphasize national identity. 
which, if it's liberal and open, you know, can be a unifying force. Well, that's a great point. A, right. Rather than a divisive one. Right. Uh, we haven't had a lot of leaders like that. I mean, Recently. I do think I think your boss Obama, you know, actually tried to do something. He tried, like that. but didn't work out. Didn't so work. Well. Yeah. Didn't work very well. But, you know, in in th- that doesn't preclude the you know the possibility of someone coming along and doing that. Uh huh. Um, I think that also people really do have a lot at stake in the globalized world. And I think that um, what you find is that in communities where there has been a high rate of immigration, people get used to it you know, uh-huh. over time. Okay. Uh, the highest uh, opposition comes to places actually that don't have immigrants, and they're afraid that they're going to you know, see these kinds of social changes. But once it happens, you know, that adjustment wow, that's you know, interesting. take place. So, so it's I, the fear, it's the expectation. Yeah, so greater? in Eastern Europe, the strongest opposition to immigration is in Eastern Europe, where there are hardly any migrants or, or <laughs> right. you know, immigrants. And in the United States, you know, California, New York, uh, Illinois, places that have large numbers of immigrants are also the most uh, accepting of them. So I do think that part of it is sort of a learning process that, you know, takes place. Obviously, it's been uh, really slowed down and reversed by this poisonous, you know, kind of rhetoric that's coming from our president and from, you know, a lot of his supporters. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think that needs to be confronted and, you know, uh, uh, pushed back by, you know, by people that really see that, you know, you, you need a... Uh, a much more tolerant country. Mm-hmm. So you assign a, a pretty high role here to leaders and uh, individuals that did that. Like, had Donald Trump not run in 2016, would we still have had the kind of populist identity politics? Well, this has been brewing for some time. Right. But I really do think that, you know, at, at a certain critical point, uh, the right kind of leader, for better or worse, can catalyze right. uh, things into a movement. And he's certainly created a movement. I mean, if you look at his rallies, yes. these people wouldn't have come together spontaneously like that yes. you know, if, if, if it were not for we're someone not for like him. him That's know. a great point. But you also talk about that not all identity politics are bad and not all populisms are bad. Mm-hmm. Help us understand the the, 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 the positive Things that can well, with populism, things. you know, people sometimes are hurting and they want to make that known to the elites. And right. so in the 1930s, you had a much steeper uh, Great Depression than we've experienced, you know, unemployment rate of 25%. Right. Uh, and that led to a big populist surge, but it was one that was captured by Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal co- coalition. Right. right. And he went on to lay the groundwork for the American welfare state, right. which was a very Some important pretty good achievement. Things. Yeah. Right. So, that sounds know, like democracy yeah, to me, right? That's, that's, <laughs> the, the, reacting to people's preferences. Yeah, well, I've often thought that populism is simply a form of democracy where you don't approve of the results. The elites don't approve of the results. The elites don't approve of the results. That's good. Uh, but certainly that populist energy can be turned uh, you know, to, to, to good uses as well as to, uh, to bad ones. Right. Is there prescriptions that, that you think could take the edges off of the more negative uh, aspects of sure. populism? What, what are some of the things that could be done? Well, I guess one of the bottom lines of my book are is that although the origins may be economic, you're not just going to solve this by economics alone. So right. obviously, you know, helping uh, stem job loss and, and retraining people, all of these are, are important. But in a way, the identity issues have to be met on their own uh, turf. Right. So that means, you know, putting forward a, a vision of American national identity and stressing American national identity. 
when you deal with immigration, you know, one of the concerns that people have is people won't assimilate to that American uh, uh, creedal identity. Uh-huh. And so I think you need policies that will do that. I think you need to teach people, you know, more civic education, you know, about their own constitutional order. Right. And, you know, the meaning of it. We've really fallen behind in that. We used uh, to do that, but we don't so we much used anymore. To, yes. We don't. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, the ignorance of just ordinary native-born American teenagers about their own system is really pretty appalling. Yes, I have one. And <laughs> I, he's, he's, he's no, he's, he, he was a student of mine. Well, own. that my oldest son, I hope, is better. But my youngest one is a high school student. He's because he lives with me, but uh, I do ride around in the car for basketball games and stuff with. And the 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 dis- discussion about basic. Civic things is uh, de- seems like it's deteriorated since my time yeah. in high school for yeah, sure. Yeah, so those are I think things we can do. I think that on immigration, uh, you have to recognize that there are different motives for opposing immigration. Some of which are much more legitimate than others. And so, of course, there are racists and xenophobes that, yes. and you can't do much about them other than simply oppose them. But I think it's legitimate to say that if you're going to have immigration, it ought to be legal. There ought to be enforcement of the existing uh-huh. rules. And I also think that, you know, you can worry about the level of immigration in terms of assimilation. If you think that, you know, people are not going to assimilate by the second or third generation, that's a legitimate reason for concern. I think that's a much bigger concern in Europe where you clearly have, uh, you know, uh, uh, immigrant populations that are really outwardly hostile to the, you know, to the existing democratic order. Right. Uh, that's not really occurred uh, to the same degree in the United States, but you don't want it to. And you so don't want I it think to. That's something you know. It's 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 legitimate to worry about that. Right, Frank. What a timely book. Uh, <laughs> you've been thinking about these things for a long time, but uh, to be out right now, right before our elections, by the way. Uh, congratulations on the timeliness. Thank you for joining us. Um, um, We'll invite you back next time after the elections uh, to see how it feels. And everybody else, you've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute. Uh, We've been speaking with Frank Fukuyama about his new book, Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment, out just a few weeks ago. And it's a lot shorter, just so you all know, uh, than (laughs) previous Fukuyama books. So pick it up, uh, uh, buy it online or, or anywhere you can find it. Thanks again, Frank, for coming with us. Thanks very much, Mike.